As most of you know, this last week my mother died, and I thank all of you for your very great kindness to me and to my family in this time. A number of you came up to uh, Toledo for the funeral last Friday night. <clears throat> Some of you, a couple of you, came up to Wheaton for the fu- second funeral the next day. And uh, I'm going to be talking this morning about the slaughter of the unborn children in our nation. And it's fitting for me uh, to comment on the fact that uh, those who are anti-abortion, I never want anybody to call me pro-life, I'm not pro-life, I'm anti-abortion. Uh, my father used to say, you're anti-abortion because back at the time of slavery, nobody went around saying they were pro-slaves. They were anti-slavery. They were abolitionists. And so I encourage all of you as an act of faith in Christ just to say what you're against. Not how much you like babies. That's, that's wussy. Everybody claims to like babies. But today I want to say this as I begin. that um, this, the, the really important thing about my mother, if you knew her, was her strength. And so often people who are moderns have the conceit, they're very, very proud about the fact that feminists are the strong women, and that women that don't have the strength of feminists uh, are willing to be subservient. And so women that submit to their husbands and fear God are stupid and barefoot and pregnant. And you'll know why I'm bringing this up at the beginning of the sermon as I get into the sermon today. But I want to say this about my mother. If you ever see any strength in me, it's almost certainly my mother that you're seeing in me, not my father. And right before she died, she was 92? Or had she turned 93? Okay. Right before she died, for a number of years, she'd been deep in Alzheimer's and and uh, her contributions to uh, the room she was in were not always epigrammatic. They often consisted of, mm, and no, and mm. And so this last week, right before she died, my brother David, who is a sinner, was yelling at his son Ben, who's also a sinner, And Ben is about 18, and David got very angry. And again, he got that from my mother. And he was yelling. He was reading the riot act of Ben. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my mother said, Oh, David. And he was writing my sister and me this last week saying how grateful he was for that final indication of his mother's love, which was a rebuke. And if you know anything about me, you know that I constantly tell you of this and that and the other rebuke of my mother. I define my life by my mother's rebuke. And I'll tell you one that most people here have heard, but if you haven't, here's a free one today. When I was in high school, I was just so filled with true love. You know, it was back in the time of the Beatles. You know, love, love, all you need is love. And I found a young woman and I decided I loved her. And her name was Mary Lee. And so I'd come home, and having not one unuttered sentiment in my heart, 
I would sit in the kitchen and I'd tell my mother how much I love Mary Lee. And my mother always responded the same way. She said to me, oh, Tim, you don't even know what love is. She was absolutely right. And the day came when I learned just a little bit what love was. You know what? It wasn't infatuation. So, so take that, all you young boys and girls that think you're in love. You just wait until you learn what love is, and probably when you first learn it, you will be crying. All right, now, um, this morning I want to do something that is unusual here, and that is I'm going to read my sermon. I'll make some uh, asides as I read it. Uh, I'm going to do this for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, I'm going to deal with a subject that we need to be very, very specific and very clear about. The words need to be chosen carefully. All right. The second thing is, though, that um, it's the only way I can get in everything I want to get in. And before I begin, I know some of you here have never heard a sermon on abortion that wasn't... Um, Christians establishing how superior they are. Well, we're, you know, we're Republicans, or we're pro-life, or we're this, that, and the other thing. This thing is driving me bonkers. It keeps howling in my ear. I'm here, and I'm painful. I'm here, and I'm painful. I'm here, and I... And it's hard to preach while something's yelling in your ear. So, anyhow... Um, I'm going to preach about abortion. My point is not to say that Christians are superior to unbelievers. My point is not to say that Republicans are better than Democrats. And my point certainly is not to say that I would never have an abortion or I would never pay for a woman to have an abortion. In our country today, we live in the midst of bloodshed. And the fact that you don't see it means absolutely nothing. I've just finished reading a book called Bloodlands from a German professor. He gave it to me. And it's all about the slaughter that permeated Eastern Europe in between Stalin on one side and Hitler on the other. And the people there were oblivious, unless they were, you know, Kalaks, you know, peasants that Stalin wanted to wipe out, Leningradians, unless they were Jews, unless they were the people that were being killed. And so, guess what? You're born, therefore you're not unborn, therefore you don't get a, give a rip about the unborn, and you don't see them, okay? This is, this is us. And the fact is, abortion is so endemic in our nation that even if you had an unborn child that was defective, you know, that it had been diagnosed in the wound with spina bifida, that, that you were 45 and you thought it might have Down syndrome, if you were 18 and unmarried. The fact is, every single one of us here today is completely capable of slaughtering, of paying a man to slaughter an unborn child. Every single one of us. There's not one of us here who is not subject to the danger of killing a human being, bearing the image of God. And many of you, in fact, have done it. There are many of you here today who have killed your unborn children. Some of you have done it without knowing you were doing it. 
And so you say, well, I'm innocent because I didn't know that's what I was doing when I was using an ECP. You know, I got raped and I used an ECP. And, and after all, isn't that justified? The answer is no, it's not justified. Children who are the product of rape are not subject to death because of the wickedness of the impregnatory act. And you say, well, I didn't know about my form of birth control, that it was an abortive fashion, you know, like an IUD. And I'd say, it doesn't matter. And you say, well, I did know, but the man that I got pregnant with wouldn't have been a good father. I say, it doesn't matter. All through history, man has killed man. And when you in Scripture read the warnings against bloodshed, they apply to you. Here's an idea. Tongue-in-cheek, here's an idea. If the Bible says something, it probably applies to you, (laughs) not other people. And so if the Bible is filled with exhortations not to shed blood, probably this is helpful to you. And you go, how? And I say, well, for instance... The sewers of our city are filled with the body parts of unborn children. Now, is that helpful? You pay your sewer fees, you're paying for the disposal of unborn children. Is that helpful? When you pay your taxes in this city, your town fathers and mothers use your tax dollars to support the main ghoulish murderer of unborn children called Planned Parenthood. Your tax dollars support Planned Parenthood in this city. Planned Parenthood nationally is paid for the murder of somewhere around 350,000 children every year. And they put it in their annual report. Here's how many dead babies that we were paid to get rid of this last year. Okay? So when the Bible says, don't commit bloodshed, it has application to you. Okay? And so, if you live in the midst of a nation of bloodshed, you're probably going to be blind to it, right? If you grow up in the middle of a bunch of women, all of whom expose their breasts and their behinds to boys. Like, have you ever been anybody to South High School? Okay? I was mind-boggled there the day a couple years ago when my son told my wife by text that he had just been suspended from school for having dope in his locker. Now, and so I went, I'll put you out of your misery. It was after I went and met with the assistant principal and, you know, it's like, I guess I was an idiot and I didn't know, right? And we go through this whole thing. All of a sudden I look at her and I go, (laughs) do you know what today is? And she said, no, what? I said, it's April 1st. And this was my son's April Fool's joke. (laughs) And so that caused me to go to South High School, and when I was there, it was unbelievable, the body parts. It was mind-boggling. Right? And so if you become a Christian, and you've grown up at South High School, and all of a sudden you hear God saying, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Wouldn't it make sense that all of a sudden you begin to see your body parts on display and you begin to cover them up, right? Is this basic Christian 
Do we really need Wendy, a Jew who doesn't believe, to teach us about modesty? Remember the Yale woman? (laughs) It's like mind-boggling. No Christian publisher is teaching us about, but the New York Times bestseller, it's an unbelieving Jewish woman. She says, hey, how about modesty? Okay, if we have lost the ability to think about body parts that should be hidden and those that should be subject to mock. Do you think as a nation we might have lost our awareness of blood? Okay? This has nothing to do with Republican, Democrat. I don't think I'm better than you. I think in a heartbeat I could have killed any of my children given the right circumstances. You understand. And so today what I want to do is I want to tune your ears so that you see the blood and you mourn it. Do you understand? And if this is inappropriate for a preacher of righteousness in the name of Jesus Christ to do, I say, shoot me. (laughs) Put me out of my misery. I'm of all people most foolish. (laughs) Do you understand? Somewhere, somebody should try to establish the, the horror of what you live in the midst of. And if the Christian church can't do it in its worship of a God who is just, then there's no place it can be done. I'm going to begin with Psalm 11. And by the way, I will say as I begin, this thing is filled with references and things that I've read other people say, some of which it'll be clear, some it won't be clear, but I don't make any claim ever that what I preach is original. It's not original I don't have an original thought in me. Everything I learned from my mummy. Okay, so afterwards, if you want the citation, send me an email and I'll send you the thing and it's got the footnotes, okay? And here's the first thing that is unoriginal, all right, that I've cribbed, all right? Psalm 11. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who, what? Who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Forty years ago, this past Tuesday, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court of these United States issued its infamous ruling, Roe v. Wade, in which the court declared that a mother's intentional killing of her unborn child was a fundamental right guaranteed under our Constitution. 
Since that ruling, it has been a commonplace to observe that Roe v. Wade, the court's repeal of the laws prohibiting abortion in all 50 states, this ruling was simply the exercise of raw judicial power with a legal justification based upon a mist and a vapor. Or as the court itself might put it, an emanation from a penumbra. Since 1973, no one has made a name for himself defending Roe v. Wade's history, its biology, its ethics, its logic, or its justice. And only a few have been foolish enough to claim this ruling will stand the test of time. In fact, when the court was handed what was arguably the best opportunity for reversal since Roe v. Wade was first issued, although the court declined to reverse itself, what was really interesting was the rationale it gave for not reversing Roe v. Wade. And I'm reading from their opinion, Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. Quote, the Roe rules limitation on state power could not be repudiated without serious inequity to people who for two decades have organized intimate relationships and made choices in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Overruling Roe's central holding would seriously weaken the court's capacity to exercise the judicial power and to function as the Supreme Court of a nation dedicated to the rule of law. Moreover, the country's loss of confidence in the judiciary would be underscored by condemnation for the court's failure to keep faith with those who do support the decision. A decision to overrule Roe v. Wade would come at the cost of both profound and unnecessary damage to the court's legitimacy. Unquote. Listening carefully, the court chose not to reverse Roe v. Wade because the withdrawal of the right to kill their unborn child might harm the plans of fathers and mothers who count on abortion as a backup for failed birth control. Also because the reversal of Roe v. Wade might harm women's exercise of financial and social equality. Might, quote, seriously weaken the court's capacity to exercise judicial power, unquote, due to the country losing confidence in its judiciary and might lead to, quote, profound and unnecessary damage to the court's legitimacy, unquote. Reading this rationale reminds us of a father refusing to apologize to his wife and children because he fears his apology would be viewed as a sign of weakness and undermine his authority. How sad the homes led by such little men. But what can we say about a nation whose highest court of law justifies its use of authority and power to support the murder of unborn children by such insecure self-justifications? The irony of the matter is that by the refusal to reverse Roe v. Wade, the court has assured the very thing it sought to prevent, namely a significant loss of confidence in the court's jurisprudence as well as its members' integrity and honor among those it governs. In fact, by standing firmly on the side of those who support and practice the murder of unborn children, the court has assured there will indeed be, quote, 
profound and unnecessary damage to its legitimacy, unquote. Today, it would be hard to imagine a ruling more controversial than Roe v. Wade, but some might single out the Dred Scott ruling of 1857 for that honor. This decision was a key part of the buildup of hostilities that led to the Civil War, and it's the judgment of some scholars that Dred Scott, quote, probably created more disagreement than any other legal opinion in U.S. history. It became a violently divisive issue in national politics and dangerously undermined the prestige of the Supreme Court, unquote. What were the court's judgments in the Dred Scott case? Well, let me read them to you. All of this is from the Dred Scott decision, starting right now until I tell you I'm no longer reading from it. It's an extended quote, all right? Says our august Supreme Court, quote, a free Negro of the African race whose ancestors were brought to this country and sold as slaves is not a, quote, citizen, unquote, within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States. When the Constitution was adopted, they were not regarded in any of the states as members of the community which constituted the state and were not numbered among its people or citizens. Consequently, the special rights and immunities guaranteed to citizens do not apply to them. The language of the Declaration of Independence, they go on to say, is equally conclusive. <laughs> conclusive. They say that the language of the Declaration of Independence is equally conclusive. And then they quote this from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them is life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And then they pick up from there and they say, the general words above quoted would seem to embrace the whole human family, but it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and form no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. The men who framed the Declaration of Independence perfectly understood the meaning of the language they used and how it would be understood by others. And they knew that it would not in any part of the civilized world be supposed to embrace the Negro race. All right, unquote. Now let us stop and compare the declaration of the U.S. Supreme Court concerning the personhood of men and women of African descent in their 1857 Dred Scott decision to that of unborn children following the court's Roe v. Wade decision 116 years later. But rather than limiting ourselves to the comparison of quotes taken from these opinions, let's develop the arguments much as they might have been heard from the, man of the, from the mouth of the man on the street defending slavery at the time of the Civil War and from the mouth of the man on the street here in Bloomington concerning the killing of unborn children today. So at the time of the Civil War, the man on the street might say, although a slave has a heart and a brain and is human from the biological perspective, a slave is not a legal person under the Constitution. The Supreme Court made this perfectly clear in the Dred Scott decision. Although a fetus has a heart and brain and is human from the biological perspective, a fetus just is not a legal person under the Constitution. The Supreme Court made this perfectly clear in the Roe v. Wade decision. 
Second, a man has the right to do whatever he pleases with his personal property, the slave. A woman has the right to do whatever she pleases with her personal property, the fetus. Third, both the social and economic burdens which will result from prohibiting slavery will be unfairly concentrated upon a single group, slaveholders. Both the social and economic burdens which will result from prohibiting abortion will be unfairly concentrated upon a single group, pregnant women. Fourth, those, isn't slavery really something merciful? Isn't it really better never to be set free than to be sent ill-equipped and unprepared into an environment where one is unwanted, unloved, and bound to be miserable? Isn't abortion really something merciful? Isn't it really better never to be born than to be sent ill-equipped and unprepared and into an environment where one is unwanted, unloved, and bound to be miserable? Five, those who believe that slavery is immoral are free to refrain from owning slaves. They should give the same freedom to those who have different moral beliefs. Those who believe that abortion is immoral are free to refrain from having abortions. They should give the same freedom to those who have different moral beliefs. Six, accordingly, those who believe that slavery is immoral have no right to try to impose their personal morality upon others by way of legislation or a constitutional amendment. Accordingly, those who believe that abortion is immoral have no right to try to impose their personal morality upon others by way of legislation or a constitutional amendment. Seven, the claim that slaves are like us is simply ridiculous. All one has to do is look at them to see that they are completely different. The claim that fetuses are like us is simply ridiculous. All one has to do is look at them to see that they're completely different. And then eight. The anti-slavery movement is in fact a small band of well-organized religious fanatics who have no respect for democracy or the principles of a pluralistic society. The anti-abortion movement is in fact a small band of well-organized religious fanatics who have no respect for democracy or the principles of a pluralistic society. And we can move to the opposite side of the argument. We see that the analogy works in that direction also. First, the question of whether slavery should be tolerated is not a matter of personal or religious belief. It's a question of protecting the civil rights of millions of innocent human beings who are not in a position to protect themselves. And second, the humanity of slaves can't be denied simply because they look different from us. There is no morally defensive, defensible way to draw a line somewhere along a continuum of skin color and claim this is where humanity starts and this is where it stops. Now, are you all with me? Two decisions a century apart, both so radical that they undermine the court's reputation and sow the seeds of violent division across our nation. Both deny the personhood of a class of human beings who are weak and oppressed. Both refuse to bring the law's strong arm of justice to bear in their defense. Both, rather than taking up the cause of the widows and orphans in their distress, and thereby mirroring the perfections of the one our second president, John Adams, referred to as the great legislator of the universe... 
They both take the side of the oppressor, declaring him to be protected by the U.S. Constitution. Is it any wonder, then, that these opinions are hated and opposed at every turn, and that they have given birth to two of the most zealous forces for political change in the history of our nation, the abolitionist or anti-slavery movement and the pro-life or anti-abortion movement? By what authority, though, do citizens oppose these rulings? If this question is to be answered on something other than a superficial level, it must be acknowledged that opposition to both Dred Scott and Roe v. Wade springs from the Christian worldview founded in Scripture and codified in the centuries-long common law tradition that every human being is unique among all God's creation in that he alone is made in the image of God. And further, that this only true God has decreed through his word, the Bible, this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Undoubtedly, hearing the arguments made by the U.S. Supreme Court against the full personhood of African slaves and the extension of them to them of all the rights of a U.S. citizen in its Dred Scott decision awakens in each of us righteous indignation. We have no doubt that had we been alive in that time, we would have stood against Dred Scott and called for an end to slavery, just as William Lloyd Garrison and many others did. But if we are inactive in opposing the killing of unborn children, we certainly would not have been found active in the anti-slavery movement. No, Jesus had us right when he said, quote, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of Lincoln. Now, that's not what he says. He says you build the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been li living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so Jesus says you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Matthew 23, 29 to 32. It is instructive to note the strong positive correlation between Christian faith and both the anti-slavery and the anti-abortion movements. For instance, the first speech given by William Lloyd Garrison, that great abolitionist, in which he repented of his past support for the colonization compromise, instead demanding a full cleansing of the evil of slavery from our national conscience, under his uncompromising cry, no union with slaveholders, was given, in fact, in the basement of Park Street Church on the corner of Boston Common. And what sort of religious commitments characterize Park Street Church to this day? Well, it was in this church that our nation's Sunday school movement was started. And to this day, Park Street Church is known as a bastion of evangelical Christian faith at the very heart of Boston. A friend of mine is the pastor there now, a man that I knew in seminary. And this same correlation of involvement in the anti-slavery movement and adherence to conservative Christian faith repeats itself over and over and over and over in the mid-19th century. Jonathan Blanchard, the first president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, was active in the Underground Railway. And today, Wheaton is known as the alma mater of Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth Bell Graham. Park Street Church and Wheaton 
are only typical of the biblical and evangelical Christian underpinnings of the anti-slavery movement. But what of the anti-abortion movement? Well, <laughs> need I say that you would not find Park Street Church or Wheaton College anywhere near the scene of the crime. When my father was still alive, and he and my mother and Mary Lee's father and her mother, they all went to Wheaton. When my dad was still alive, he sent me a copy of the Wheaton student newspaper. There, were, there was a small, despised, tiny little group of Wheaton college students who wanted the school to do something to say it was against abortion, but the administration, the trustees, were absolutely opposed to saying anything against abortion. And so the president, Dick Chase at the time, if I remember correctly, wrote this thing in the student newspaper talking about how on ethical issues of the day, where, which are deeply controversial, that, that it is not the place that, yeah, 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 you know. And my dad took his blue fountain pen and he wrote at the top, bright blue letters, he said, imagine Jonathan Blanchard writing this and saying this about slavery. And so that's what we as Christians today have decayed to. And you might be confused about why Garrison repented of his involvement in the colonization movement. So let me take just a moment to explain that to you. Back at the first part of the, uh, of the 19th century, it was in vogue for those who opposed slavery to want to address it positively through crisis pregnancy centers. Because after all, who's opposed to taking diapers for a pregnancy center and volunteering? It's such a positive work. You can get involved in it and, and everybody can be for it and, and nobody will ever be offended by you. I mean, you know, except the most hardened shrews of feminists. And, you know, in New York City and Manhattan, they actually do even oppose the pregnancy centers. I think they've made them illegal in the last year or two. But, but, but leave that to the side, all right? Normally, you can have good press and be pro-baby, right? Well, the same thing was true of slavery. What they did with slavery is they said, you know, we're against abortion, but I'll tell you what, we'll just be pro-colored. We'll be pro-Negro. And what we'll do is get rich people to give money, and then we'll buy Negroes out of slavery, but, but we won't keep them here. <laughs> we'll, we'll send them back to where they came from. And so they, they were sent to a nation called Liberty, they're bought out of slavery and sent to a nation called Liberty, and that nation is Liberia, okay? And that's where they were all sent. And what William Lloyd Garrison saw was that he was a wuss. And that from then on, and he went in the basement of Park Street Church, and he said, I now, and I know this word is a heinous word, it's just so awful that no church can utter it anymore, but it's amazing how frequently it appears in Scripture, especially with the preaching of the apostles and Jesus. Jesus began to preach what? Repent. And so Garrison stood up in the basement of Park Street Church. He said, I now repent. And what did he repent of? He repented of being involved in crisis pregnancy centers instead of opposing abortion. And he said, from now on, he said, colonization was my compromise. From now on, he said, no union with slaveholders. And that is the abolitionist movement. Do you understand? This is why you'll be happy to take diapers over to the crisis pregnancy center. Of course, I'm all for Liberia, and I'm all for the crisis pregnancy center. But you'll never, ever go over 
on Thursday when they kill the babies and stand there as a witness for the least of these. Because all of a sudden your hair stands on end and you wonder whether you're capable of doing things that aren't entirely civilized. You know, death and murder tend to purify one's thought process, particularly if one is a man. (laughs) Even in the most decadent of us, something arises up in us. Have have any of you been there? Any of you been there? Raise your hand if you've been there. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's just something that seems to have been made for a moment such as that. (laughs) You women won't understand. Unless it's your child and your husband has been killed and now it's you or your child. And then you women will understand better than men ever have. Which is why you never want to break up a fight between two women. (laughs) And so here they are, the colonization movement. He says, I repent. From now on, what? No, what? No union with slaveholders. And this happened in Park Street Church where the Sunday School movement was started. Where today, the most biblical witness to all the students at Harvard and MIT and Boston University, BU, and and all the schools in the Boston area, that's where they all go. Go on a Sunday morning if you're in Boston. Some years back, back, Family Planning Perspectives, which is the research journal of the Alan Guttmacher Institute, which is a special affiliate, quote-unquote, of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. You all know Planned Parenthood does all the abortions in our country, or about a, a, a quarter of them. So this is a special organization related to Planned Parenthood, and this is their research, scholarly publication, all right? Some years back, this publication published several studies examining the demographic composition of the pro-abortion and the anti-abortion forces. The articles titled Abortion Activists and the War Between Women demonstrate the intractable nature of this conflict spawned by the Supreme Court. For instance, taking two of the principal political action groups on opposite sides of this issue, the National Abortion Rights Action League pro-abortion, and the National Right to Life Committee, anti-abortion, they found, quote, so this is from them, from our enemies, all right, those that are pro-baby killing, they say right to life members are far more likely than abortion rights members to have been reared in large families. To prefer large families and themselves to have large families. 87% of Right to Life members report that religion plays a very or extremely important role in their lives compared to only 20% of abortion rights members. And then she says this, It is difficult to imagine data that might more convincingly demonstrate that religion is a very important factor in determining attitudes about legal abortion. Turning from the opposing organizations to the demographics of individual women on opposing sides of this issue, in January 84 article, The War Between Women, also published in Family Planning Perspectives, author Kristen Luker speaks of, quote, the emotional and volatile abortion debate, declaring, quote, over the last decade, the subject of abortion has galvanized and polarized Americans in the same way that such moral issues as abolition once did. 
She continues, quote, women who are engaged in the abortion debate are separated from one another by income, education, family size, and occupation. Thus, the abortion debate grows out of two very different social worlds that support very different aspirations and beliefs. The life circumstances and beliefs of the activists on both sides of the abortion issue serve to reinforce one another in such a way that the activists have little room for dialogue and few incentives for it. One may ask, who is the typical uh, right to life and the typical abortion activist? The typical abortion activist is a 44-year-old married woman whose father was a college graduate. She married at age 22 or older, has one or two children, and has had some graduate or professional training post-bachelors. She is married to a professional man, is herself employed, and has a high family income. She attends church rarely, if at all. Indeed, religion is not particularly important to her. The typical pro-life activist, she says, is also a 44-year-old married woman. She, however, married at age 17 and has three or more children. 16% of the right-to-life women in the study have seven or more children. Her father was graduated from high school only, and she herself has a good chance of having gone no further in school. She is not employed and is married to a small businessman or or a lower-income white-collar worker. Her family income is $20,000 lower than the average abortion rights household. Her religion is one of the most important aspects of her life. The two sides have very little in common in the way they look at the world. And this is particularly true with regard to the critical issues of gender, sex, and parenthood. The views on abortion of each side are intimately tied to and deeply reinforced by their views on these other areas of life. Even if the abortion issue had not mobilized them on opposite sides of the barricades, they would have been opponents on a wide variety of issues. Abortion rights activists... Now listen to this. Abortion rights activists see women's reproductive and family roles not as a natural niche, but as a potential barrier to full equality. A general theme in the interviews with right-to-life activists, many of whom have large families, is that there is an anti-child sentiment abroad in American society. And then she ends with this. She says, in short, the debate about abortion rests on the question of whether women's fertility is to be socially recognized as an asset or as a burden. Listen, people. You know how I never get off the issue of sexuality, right? You all know that. And you know that I am, I am, I am relentless when it comes to defending women having babies. Why do you think that is? Have you ever wondered about that? Certainly, I hope you're not a sociobiologist. (laughs) It doesn't have to do with my genes. I am wearing jeans, but it has nothing to do with my genes. Okay. You know why it is? It's because my whole life, the people that I knew who had the least influence and were taken least seriously and most despised by the sophisticates and the educated and the rich. In my life, as I looked, you know, you walk through life and you look on your right, you're looking, you look, you know, you watch, right? Everybody, you all watch, right? The people that I saw most oppressed in my life were mothers of children. 
And can you tell me, who is their advocate? If a mother who has spent her whole day taking care of her baby has her husband come home, and he is mean and rude and unloving to who, who does she have as an advocate? Can she file a sexual harassment claim? And if when she gets old, she's left to die alone, who is her advocate after she has raised her children? A young woman has some man act as if he's interested in her for two years when she's at the springtime of life, and then he can't quite pull the trigger. And she has been vulnerable to him. Who is her advocate? Who will speak up for women who are women today? That's the reason I always speak on this. It's not because I'm Tim or I'm a man like that. It's because I see the oppression of true women in our culture, and I hate it. And it's contrary to Scripture, and I happen to be a preacher, and so where am I going to address it? I'm going to address it in the church. Can you imagine Jesus Christ coming today and not being relentless on the issue of sexuality? You imagine what he would have to say about the oppression of young mothers in our culture. You imagine what he would have to say about the way evangelicals cast off their wives when they get stretch marks. And you listen to the description of the women on the two sides of this issue. How can you not begin to speak up for the unborn? Even if you're a man and you, you can't even connect with it. Even if you're a man whose wife has had a miscarriage and it's just hypothetical to you. You love her. What are you going to do? All of a sudden, what you're going to do is you're going to begin to have funerals for miscarriages. Do you understand? Have you ever heard a woman who has had a miscarriage? You know that I have a friend I talked to this last week. When he and his wife were in Boston, they were at a PCA church, and she lost a child late in pregnancy. And so they asked the preacher, the PCA preacher, to have a, a, a funeral for their child. You know what that preacher said? He said, no, I will not have a funeral for your child. And so the, the associate pastor said to him, he heard of this, he said, if you do not have a funeral for that child, I'm going to take you before Presbyterian and file charges against you. And so then that preacher went ahead and had a funeral. <laughs> All of a sudden, he found a principal. <laughs> and then you know what happened? As soon as that funeral was over, you know what he did? He fired that associate pastor. And how do I know this? I know it because the parents of that child told me personally. It's amazing to me to think that that man went on to become a PCA pastor. If a broad cross-section of American society is anti-child and views women's fertility as a burden, it's little wonder that unborn children are killed at the rate of around 1.3 million per year in our nation. Sacrificed on the altars of our national gods of convenience, choice, autonomy, and self-determination. But it's also no wonder that godly mothers and daughters and sisters and grandmothers 
and wives will oppose this slaughter of the little ones with every ounce of their being. And if you're a man, you'll be ahead of them. (laughs) What do you think you've been given broad shoulders for? Hey, the two of you, come here, come here, come here, come here. I got to show them this. Come here. Both of you, come on, come on, Ryan. You know how many times I've asked you to come up in front of the congregation. Now, just willy-nilly, come on up here. Just willy-nilly out of nowhere, it occurs to me as I'm preaching to show you the difference between a man and a woman. (laughs) Now, this is man. What do you want me to call you? Yeah, this is woman. In Hebrew... When he saw her, he said, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken from Ish. Now, if somebody attacks her, and she, because she has certain body characteristics, has babies attached. Are you with me? Okay. And somebody comes to attack her, her babies. Come on. Is this like PhD level? Or masters? Okay, thank you. Hey, help her down. (laughs) She's got high heels on. She'd be looking pretty. Okay, now guys. The only way that you can forget these things if, if you get an education. It's the only thing that can eviscerate it from your innate knowledge. (laughs) And they have to have incredible baubles to get you to be educated. Baubles like PhD and MTS and BA. I'm trying to be civilized. Men are made to be in front of the women who love children. And if you're not in front of them, and if you don't defend those children, and if you don't defend that mother, you are not a man. Do you understand me? Any man in history has understood this. It's just, it's just obvious. Are you made to protect women and children? Men? I mean, David, come here. We got another example here. I mean, this one's great. Come on, come on up. Yeah. I mean, look at this. Come on, Marta. Come on, we're not asking you to speak. Just walk. Come here. Now, help her up. Walk over here. Now, okay, now, I present to you man, woman. Now, would you stand in front of her, please? Marta! Okay, now you stand in front of him. This is the next generation of the Marine Corps. You have to be educated to be that stupid. Okay, thank you. Now listen, people. Just as those involved in the anti-slavery movement believed in the full personhood and dignity of members of the African race because of their prior belief that every human being is made in the image of God, 
So also those involved in the anti-abortion movement believe in the full personhood and dignity of all children because of their prior belief in the same biblical doctrine that every human being, born or unborn, is made in the image of God. Slaves or freedmen of African descent, unborn children swimming in the amniotic fluid of their mother's womb. All bear God's image and are therefore, in the words of our own Declaration of Independence, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And further, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This, then, is the impasse of our nation, and it grows ever deeper. On one side are those who do believe in the dignity of every person from the moment of conception to the time of natural death, because each one bears God's image. On the other side are those who do not believe in the dignity of every person, but are rather convinced that the dignity of some, particularly those living in the first world, who are fat and rich and white and educated, and of course already born, that the dignity of some trumps the inalienable rights of others. Or to put it bluntly, our divided nation falls in between behind two lines of women, one which believes it is right to give up their lives for their children, and the other that it is right for their children to give up their rights and their lives for their mothers. Back in the 18th century, in six pages of elegant deadpan prose, Jonathan Swift set forth an impeccably logical solution to alleviate the Irish potato famine potato blight. Pure people should dismember and eat their babies. Swift wrote, quote, a young healthy child well nursed is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled, unquote. Through satire, Swift intended to shock his readers out of their moral turpitude. But today, when English teachers teach a modest proposal, they often find it hard to make students realize that Swift was joking. This is Steve Berenzi got an actual response from his student. He said, quote, well, I, I don't completely agree with him, but it does make me a little peckish. I don't completely agree with him, but he does make some really good points, unquote. Harvesting embryonic children for their stem cells is little different from Swift's proposal to harvest just born children for food. But whereas Swift's audience pulled back in revulsion, much of the American public thinks this is a swell idea. Adults are supposed to provide for, protect, and if necessary, give their lives to defend their children. They are not supposed to sacrifice children for their own well-being. What has happened to us, to our senators and congressmen and Supreme Court justices and presidents and mayors and governors and law enforcement officers and attorneys and physicians? What has happened to the men of this nation for 40 years now that has caused us to look the other way as 50 million unborn children have been slaughtered in their mother's wombs? How 
Has the killing of these children been invisible to us? Have we really not heard their cries or felt their pain or seen their blood? Again and again, Scripture declares God's hatred for the shedding of blood. 2 Kings 24, 3 and 4, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. And when the blood is shed by fathers and mothers, and it is the blood of their own children, this is what God says in Psalm 106, beginning with verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. We are oblivious to their suffering. What does this say about the condition of our hearts? Proverbs 29.7, the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. Brothers and sisters, it is time that we shake off our complacency concerning the oppression surrounding us. And remember again the godliness and courage of those who have gone before us who dealt a mortal blow to the U.S. Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision and brought an end to slavery. Like us, every effort was made to silence them and to relegate their cries for reform to the backwater of private religious expression. But they would have none of it. They were determined to be heard. When they tried to silence Abraham Lincoln... Do you know how he responded? Listen to this. He said, this is Abraham Lincoln. Let us apply a few tests. You say that you think slavery is wrong, but you denounce all attempts to restrain it. Is there anything else that you think wrong that you're not willing to deal with as a wrong? Why are you so careful, so tender of this one wrong and no other? You will not let us do a single thing as if it were wrong. There is no place where you will allow it to even be wrong. There is no place where you will allow it even to be called wrong. We must not call it wrong in politics because that's bringing religion into politics. We must not call it wrong in the pulpit because that's bringing politics into religion. And there is no single place, according to you, where this wrong thing can properly be called wrong. And so listen, brothers and sisters, let us today, let each of us here today 
remember that God is not on his throne for nothing. God's not on his throne for nothing. When I'm in D.C., I don't do most of the things people do, but I do do one thing that everybody does, and that's go to the Lincoln Memorial. And I could not give a rip about what's written on the left wall. Even though what's written on the left wall was given within about 30 feet of where all my ancestors are buried in the Evergreen Cemetery in Gettysburg. That's where all of my ancestors, John Bailey and then his son Joseph Tate Bailey I, Joseph Tate Bailey III, second Joseph Tate Bailey III, that's where Annie Lane is buried, and it's right there where that address, the Gettysburg, was given. Right there, right there. And I don't ever go over to that side. I go to the right side. And I remind myself what preachers used to be like. They used to fear God. And it was so prevalent that preachers feared God that even an unbelieving non-church member like Abraham Lincoln was filled with more knowledge of the character and perfections and attributes of God than any preacher today. And he, in the midst of the Civil War, gave this as his second inaugural address. And that's what's on the right wall. And you listen to what he says. He says this, the Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through its appointed time, he now wills to remove And that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, yet... If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said today. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. (laughs) Now listen. What do we do? I have just two simple applications. One application is educate your children. What we need today is a bunch of very creative and very tender-hearted young boys and girls to grow up and to write Uncle Tom's Cabin for the unborn children. And it won't happen if your children are pig ignorant. They have to know words. 
they have to have grown up eating from the best presentation of words the world has. Not because you're intent on them pursuing excellence. That's prostitution of education. <laughs> okay? We need excellent educated Christian children so that they will grow up and constantly ruminate on the absence of the personal uh, manifestation of unborn children because that's our biggest hurdle. Uncle Tom's Cabin, when it was written, it ended slavery in this country because all of a sudden all the white people entered into the lives of black people and had sympathy and compassion and said, no more, we're done with it. But how do you have people enter into the hearts and minds and suffering and pain of unborn children? By very definition, there are no victims. How do you have a Holocaust museum for unborn children? How do you have famous novels that get the Nobel Prize for Literature from unborn children? You know, where's an unborn child's Hannah Arendt, you know? It just doesn't exist. And so what we need is young people growing up, reading, doing music, whatever, whatever the creative ability God's given you. Growing up educated so that you can write the novel, write the poetry, write the articles, and convince the nation. That's what's needed. Okay, we don't need any more scholarly presentations on this subject. We've had scholarships out the nose for decades. The best scholarship. No question. What we need is someone who, who teases out the knot by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of presenting the personhood of an unborn child. Okay? And it was a woman that did it. Hey, 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 yeah. hey, hey. Yes, your daughter, Eric. Now, one other thing. Your children will never be educated because you choose the right curriculum or the right school. <laughs> Enough of that. You waste so much time on the forest that you never get the trees. The way you educate children is you read to them and have them read. And, and this is what none of you do. <laughs> that, you're all sort of intent on that one, but here, this is the other half that you don't have. And then, what do you do at the dinner table? You argue. That's what none of you do. You're all compliant. And what you need to do is teach your children to argue. Not fight, but argue. And their dad should be willing to let them have Adam. And he shouldn't be thin-skinned, right? So now there's nobody here ready to volunteer. <laughs> and if he is thin-skinned, he should apologize. Okay? Argue. Christians have the freedom to argue. Read and argue and forget how your children are educated and they'll grow up educated. All right, that's the first thing we can do. And you say, well, what does that have to do with this? I say again, unborn children have no personhood visible. We have to figure out a way of making them visible, of getting people to have sympathy for something they've never seen or heard or touched. Are you with me? Now, what's the second thing? Well, actually, I've told you this before, but I think we need to have a Holocaust museum. You know the Creation Museum over in Cincinnati? 
Something just like that, but bad instead of good. What we need is a museum where we have pictures of all the ghouls who have made their living off killing thousands of little babies. Take their pictures, okay? Mount them up on the wall. Take pictures of their wives before and after plastic surgery. Take pictures of their cars. Take pictures of their neighbors who lived in harmony with them on each side. Take pictures of the people that are a member of their club. Isn't this what we do with the Third Reich? <laughs> right? Well, this is infinitely worse than the Third Reich. We're talking half a billion around the world in the last couple of decades. Okay, Take, get samples of the machinery, you know? Frequent the dumpsters and pull out the machinery that they use to kill the babies. And so this museum is just filled with the death of the unborn. And you know, if you go to the Billy Graham Museum, at the very end of the Billy Graham Museum, what you do is you walk through this misty, vaporous, kind of bluish, kind of cloudy, kind of... Have any of you ever done this? Well, you go there and you'll see what I'm talking about. And, and what it is, is it's the entry to heaven that every evangelical will certainly have, Right? And, and so as you go through this mystery, vaporous kind of blue thing, all of a sudden, the PA comes on and it's, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And that's the end of the Billy Graham Museum. But what we need to do is, like, have Wagner. Or maybe uh, a, a drone reading Schopenhauer. And as you go through that tunnel, what it is, is it's the, uh, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, the aquarium from next to Lake Michigan. And it's filled with the blood and the body parts of the children. It's filled. You and your children, you walk through all the dead babies, thousands and thousands of dead babies in solution around you. And you say, well, what kind of perverted mind comes up with that? And I say, do you think it would do something? You bet it would. Do you remember the first time you were at the Museum of Science and Industry and you saw those babies in the little glass jars on the walls? You remember that? I looked at them and I thought, how come the people that believe in the ascent of man can have dead babies on their walls just to teach us how mysterious life is? But Christians who serve a God of justice, who hates bloodshed, can't even think their way out of a barrel. It would never occur to them to have a bunch of dead babies' bodies on the wall so that they can take their children in. And you can walk between all the bodies, all the blood, all the guts, torsos and intestines. And you can just imagine, because after all, this is what your sewer fees go for. Come on, wake up! This is what our nation is drowning in. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God never forgets the blood. And that one day, what does his word say? One day, the land, the earth, what? It will give up the blood of the innocent. 
Did you know the Bible says that? So why not just a little hint of what is coming from Christians who believe that simply to testify publicly to what the Word of God says is always legitimate, especially in a land where the, we have the First Amendment right. <laughs> you know, how could anybody oppose it? Now, all of you, do you have the picture? Can anybody deny that that is not something that is unbelievably necessary today? Uh, you say, well, I'm not taking my children. I say, I'm with you. When we showed the silent scream at our church, I would not let my children see it. And you say, well, you're a hypocrite. I say, duh. I don't know what to do, but I'm a preacher, and now I've done my part. Do you know the last time I said this publicly afterwards, it was at a conference out in, uh, out in uh, Idaho. Afterwards, a man came up to me, a Dutchman. He said, I have a check here for 2000 I want to give it to you to start that museum. And I said, no, no, no. I said, that's not my job. Do you hear me? Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we admit that we are so deadened to holiness and to bloodshed and to justice. We are a people that live in the midst of the Canaanites and we have adopted their ways. And so, Father, would you please awaken our hearts so that we do see justice, so that we do care about the oppressed, and so we do begin to defend mothers and their children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.